Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you so much for sharing some of your precious time with me. It is with great pleasure that I introduce today's guest, Tal McThenia. He is an author and screenwriter whose writing has appeared in VanityFair.com, Bloomberg Businessweek, and Atlas Obscura, and many other venues. He writes children's animated science mysteries for Moza Max Science, and in 2012, he co-wrote, along with Margaret Dunbar Cutright, a book that won the Louisiana Literary Award. It is called A Case for Solomon, Bobby Dunbar and the Kidnapping that Haunted a Nation. If the story sounds familiar to you at all, It was one of the more memorable episodes of the public radio series, This American Life, which he wrote and reported for back in 2008. And I remember listening to it when it originally aired. Uh, It's so good to have you on the show. Thank you for, for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here and to talk about the book. So how were you first introduced to this case, and how did it become an episode of This American Life? And then, how did it transition into a book? I first heard about this story in 2004. Um, I read a newspaper article uh, in the Associated Press. The article was about a hundred-year-old kidnapping. A little boy named Bobby Dunbar was kidnapped from his home in 1912 and uh, eventually recovered. Um, the story had kind of lingered in his family for a century. Um, there was kind of a, a, a mystery in the, in the story around, um, the actual identity of the child. And that mystery had festered within the family. Uh, finally, Bobby Dunbar's granddaughter, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, began digging into the story and uh, doing uh, doing a you know a extensive research into 
uh, historical archives, uh, court records. She interviewed a lot of people and she eventually came to the conclusion that the legend about the kidnapping that she had grown up with was very different than the reality she was uh, uncovering with her research. And eventually uh, the, the question of the identity of the child became so strong that the family uh, decided to do a DNA test. And the results of that DNA test were, uh, the, were the subject of the article uh, that I read. So the article was basically hundred year old mystery finally solved. And, um, it was a, you know, it's a really truly fascinating story. I just couldn't quite believe that it was, that it was true. There were so many twists and turns and so many, uh, interesting historical characters. And Margaret's story of research and work that challenged her family's legend was so intense and, and interesting. So, uh, a few years later, I kind of pitched the idea to a friend of mine who worked at This American Life. He was a producer there and um, he loved the idea. I got in touch with Margaret and um, her, I would say her first sort of criteria or requirement to me as a reporter was, if you want to tell my story, you also have to tell the story from, from different perspectives. Um, you have to tell the story from the perspective of the family another family that claimed Bobby Dunbar as their own. Uh, there was another mother besides Bobby Dunbar's mother that insisted that he was her child, not Bobby Dunbar. So that family was an important voice. They had kind of a legend themselves that was the exact opposite of the one that Bobby Dunbar's family had. So... Margaret also said, you need to talk to the family of the alleged kidnapper, the, the descendants of, of them, of that man, um, a man named William Walters. That family had grown up with the, um, you know, generations passed down the stigma of having their, their ancestor branded a, a child snatcher, a pedophile, any number of other things. So the, the wound, of the case of the hundred year old mystery wasn't one that was just in Margaret's family. It was one in, in, that had been passed down in all of these other families as well. And it was, you know, that's, that's really the way that the, the telling of the story of the This American Life radio show unfolded. I interviewed Margaret. I interviewed um, her father, many of her family members, um, some of whom were in, in real conflict about the discoveries that Margaret had made. And, um, and I interviewed the descendants of Julia Anderson. She was that other mother, the other mother that claimed that Bobby Dunbar was not Bobby Dunbar or that the boy recovered was not Bobby Dunbar, but rather her son, Bruce Anderson. And they, you know, those, those family members, um, had been, had been, had felt like they had lost a child. They felt like the, the Dunbars had kidnapped their relative, Bruce. So they were living with this whole other legend. And I did, was able to talk to the descendants of William Walters, the alleged kidnapper, who, uh, had firsthand knowledge of their, of, uh, just how, uh, sore the stigma was for their, ancestor and also really kind of the strange nature of his character. So, you know, I was taught, I was talking to a lot of people who were in their seventies and eighties and it was 
you know, really amazing. You know, virtually everybody I talk to, the, the, every older generation person I talk to is gone now. And so I feel so happy that I was able to hear from them and to, to hear their stories. It was, you know, it's just, it just is as a real, real gift. Um, and I'm thrilled with how the radio show came together and thrilled that so many people have had been able to hear their, their voices. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will include a link to it in the show notes. Oh, great, great, great. Um, so the interviews you did on that, this American life episode, the focus was on the descendants of the original players in the drama, how, how their families carried the weight of that history with them over generations. Yeah. And how this new information that they would learn affected how they viewed that history. Yeah. But, but the case itself, how it unfolded in 1912 and 1913, uh, that wasn't covered really much in, in that original broadcast. And that's where your book comes in, right? You wrote the history book that tells that original story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, you know, Margaret had, Margaret had done years and years of work, historical research, and um, I spent a long time looking at it, uh, weeding through it, and and um, uh, in preparation for the radio show. But but um, both she and I, as happy as we were with the how the radio show came out, knew that there was so much more in that history, and so so many more, uh, not just details, but so many more insights into character and in, and motivation and. There was just, it was a very, very rich historical mystery that deserved treatment all on its own. So we decided to, to collaborate in a book to co-author a full historical nonfiction account of the case and just sort of dove in. I, I then took up her research and started doing a, a lot of research of my own in and around the, um, the places where the, the story occurred mainly in Opelousas, Louisiana, which is where the Dunbar family was, uh, then a lot of work over in Mississippi, in Poplarville, Mississippi, and some other, other parts of the state where Julie Anderson's descendants had settled and lived. And Margaret and I traveled ever. We traveled all, we traveled through North Carolina. We did a lot of work in New Orleans together. And, uh, it was, you know, it was really interesting seeing I guess seeing the research that she had done come to life again and finding all kinds of new layers in it as well. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, re- it was a, it was a great, a, a great collaboration. And once it came time for me to kind of take all of that stuff and go off and write it, I always had her, she was sort of reading everything that I wrote as I wrote it. And it was really, it was, so valuable to have another person there that knew the history as well as I did and knew the story to kind of bounce stuff off of and argue over, you know, arguing over character motivations. Um, you know, sometimes we just had, had sort of research questions that I didn't, you know, I didn't know. And Margaret would go looking, you know, she, so many times during that writing process, she would, we realized there was a hole in the research and she would go off and, try to get to the bottom of it. And uh, it was a great process. Yeah. 
So, so could you tell us about the Dunbar family in 1912? Sure. In 1912, the Dunbar family was a what they everyone uses the word prominent. Percy Dunbar was a real estate broker, a local politician in Opelousas, Louisiana, kind of mid-sized city in in Louisiana, and a beloved sort of community leader. He he had recently married um, his wife, Leslie. They had uh, one child, a son. In 1912, he was four years old. His name was Robert or Bobby. They had another son, two years younger, named Alonzo. And in August of 1912, they, like many of the other people in Opelousas, were baking in the Louisiana heat and, and wanted to... Um, to cool off. Uh, there were some lakes nearby, some kind of like bayou lakes, and the family had a camp there. So they were they were basically having a camping trip at one of these lakes, which is called Swayze Lake. And they were having a picnic with a lot of different people uh, coming and going outside of these two little cabins by the side of this lake. And kids shuffling back and forth, people were fishing, Percy Dunbar, the father, had been called away on business right before lunch was supposed to be served. And in that shuffle, Bobby Dunbar went missing. Nobody really noticed at first, but as soon as they they noticed, they started looking around first in the immediate area, then kind of like plowing into this more jungly kind of weed brushy areas around the lake. Uh, and nobody, there was there was no trace of of the boy. Um, the further they looked, they they eventually saw some a pair of footprints um, near a, a railroad track that went over the lake at the end of the lake. And um, those footprints sort of went up the embankment towards the railroad track and then just kind of disappeared. So that led to some speculation that somebody traveling by by train car or walking down the tracks had abducted the child. The search got bigger and bigger over the next few days and even weeks. No trace of this child other than those footprints was found. The town put up a thousand dollar reward for Bobby Dunbar listing his, you know, his traits and physical description, what he was wearing and for a while, it seemed like both the parents and the town were sort of leaning towards accepting that this child might have died. He might have drowned in the lake and and uh, not been recovered. They dynamited the lake, in fact, to try to bring up a body, a possible body, uh, and no luck there. But then, I think in, in part because of the reward that was offered, uh, it was later up to $10,000, sightings of children started flooding in to the Dunbar household. First, there were sightings of a, a mysterious Italian woman who uh, had a little boy that uh, going across a, a river in a boat. Then suspicions turned to African-Americans, maybe, the, maybe a nearby community of African-American uh, lumber workers had, had stolen the child. There, you know, it's kind of like suspicion was cast in all kinds of different directions, particularly sort of more vulnerable populations. And um, 
by the that fall, September, October of 1912, the public at large had sort of settled on the idea that an itinerant man had taken the child, um, a peddler or a tramp or a hobo, a population that was that was really exploding at the time with with rail travel. So there were all kinds of men on the road, and everyone uh, in in you know the southern Louisiana and southern Mississippi started scrutinizing uh, these men whenever they came to their towns and uh, harassing them and. Uh, let's see, a big a detective agency, the William Burns Detective Agency, got involved. Uh, the Dunbars hired them, and they kind of uh, systematized this search, but it also became more aggressive and violent. Eventually, they, with the Burns Agency's help, apprehended a trio of men, of itinerant men, and put them in jail, uh, tried to get them to confess to being part of a kidnapping ring. And that didn't really work. And uh, again, there was no trace of, of uh, Bobby Dunbar anywhere. So sometime sort of in the early part of um, 1913, the Dunbars, I think, were closing in on the reality that their child really might be might be gone forever. But even then, these leads just kept on coming. So they were in this kind of like agonizing place where they couldn't mourn because there was always somebody out there that was telling them that their son might still be alive. You know, it was driving Lessie Dunbar, the mother, particularly crazy. And Percy, the father, doing the best to protect her, would follow up on these leads and try try his best in... um the spring of 1913, a sighting came from Mississippi, from Columbia, Mississippi, um, which is you know just to the east of Louisiana. There have been uh, multiple sightings in this community, a small community of a tinker, a wandering handyman that um, had in his uh, custody a small child, a bedraggled uh, little boy that some people had seen the old man whipping and they that you know it turns out that this pair the the tinker and the little boy had been stopped by people for months and months before this people thinking this might be Bobby Dunbar this might be Bobby Dunbar so so they were they were used to this kind of harassment from people uh, suspicious people each time they were able to kind of like beat it away, beat up the, you know, the, the, the tinker was kind of able to brush it off. One of the ways that he was able to do that was the description of, of Bobby Dunbar mentioned a large and very noticeable scar on the child's toe. It was a burn, a scar from a burn. And the um, scar was so severe that it actually disfigured the toe and made it smaller than the toe on the other foot, the big toe on the other foot. And the boy that was in the Tinker's uh, custody didn't have that scar. So uh, that was always sort of the, the clincher, that the, that the Tinker wasn't, in fact, a kidnapper, and the boy wasn't Bobby Dunbar. The Tinker's name was William Walters. And no matter how vociferously Walters uh, protested all of these accusations, no matter how easily he, he pushed back on them, they persisted. And in one community in particular, uh, the women got so outraged at what they 
perceived as abuse by uh, Walters towards the child that they contacted the Dunbars in Louisiana and basically demanded that the Dunbars come and see if the child was theirs. So trying not to get his wife's hopes up, Percy Dunbar went alone to Mississippi to see the child and the child didn't really answer to the name Bobby. He didn't really seem to recognize Percy Dunbar, which was for a father, heartbreaking, obviously, um, and also really confusing because the community themselves had been so insistent that this must be Bobby Dunbar. We will be back momentarily. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg, From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Yeah, it's a really interesting scene. Percy is a man of action, and Lessie is just heartbroken, as one might imagine. Yeah. And Percy admits along the way that he has no choice but to find Bobby because he can't face his wife without him, basically. Yeah. So when he hears about this boy, the the possibility of this boy being Bobby, he, he makes tracks to see him. And they see each other for the first time when Percy runs up to the automobile the boy is sitting in. Yeah, yeah. Can you describe their meeting? 
Yeah. The boy is standing on the running board of a car. He has been taken from the tinker and driven uh, in this car. And Percy Dunbar comes upon him at this moment. And there's a photograph in this moment of father and possibly son reconciling. There's a photograph that was taken of uh, the boy standing on the running board looking, uh, you know, he's wearing a, a filthy uh, little raggedy kind of dress. He's barefooted. Um, there are people in the car behind him. And uh, it's just, a, it's an amazing, amazing kind of snapshot of this moment where this child is at a turning point in his own identity. Percy is is about to identify him potentially as his as his son. Um, he's about to transition from being a child on the road with this wandering tinker to being a, a, a lost boy who has been found by his family. It's a really remarkable, remarkable photograph. And it doesn't go the way Percy hoped it would, right? Right, yeah. He's unable to to identify the child. Child kind of pulls away from him crying. So he sends for his wife, Lessie, to come to Mississippi uh, herself, which is a, a huge ordeal by train. She gets there late at night. The child is being held in a small cabin uh, of a deputy sheriff that that um, w- refuses to give the child up until he receives the um, the kidnapping reward uh, money, and no one's going to give anyone any money if it's if the child isn't Bobby Dunbar, and the only way they can f- decide if the child is Bobby Dunbar is if mother identifies him in person. So the entire cabin, tiny little cabin is surrounded, you know, hundreds or thousands of people are packed in this field around the house, peering into the windows of the house. And she goes into this bedroom where the child is sleeping, tries to wake him up and he starts crying. Um, she's looking, you know, through the, the, the light of this oil lamp into his eyes to see if she can see some part of her son that is in this child's eyes. Meanwhile, the crowd outside is getting restless and impatient. They basically were there. If Leslie had identified that child as Bobby Dunbar that night, they would have, that mob would have gone to the jail where William Walters, the tinker was being held, uh, break him out and probably lynch him. Um, that was That was sort of the mood that was going on. Uh, there was a, a real, um, at the time, a real, a sense of outrage o- around kidnapping that, that, um, because of some kind of high profile kidnappings that had been, that had occurred in that area in prior years. So there was this real kind of sense that taking a child, even if the child is now recovered, is a crime punishable by death, even if it's mob justice. So, all of that pressure got to her, you know, she could, um, and by her own admission, she couldn't see that the child was hers, that it was an inconclusive encounter. She said, I don't know if it's him or not. And uh, the next day, in the light of day, they returned to the cabin and were able to get the child to come with them in a car to a nearby house, a a bigger house where the Dunbars had been staying. uh, And 
there, Leslie Dunbar was left alone with a child. Maybe that, you know, maybe she could without the, without all these people staring and ogling and pushing her, she could she could bond with this child and see something in this child that that might be Bobby. And she took the child into the the bathroom and gave him a bath. They were very quiet in the bath together, and she came out of the bathroom to dress the child. And um, he, in her recollection, pointed to a pair of sandals and said something to the effect that those were the sandals that he had been wearing the day that he went missing. And in Lessie's mind, that was enough. She felt like that was the, the proof. So she sort of announced to her husband and then to the authorities that this was her son, Bobby. And there was a, you know, a huge celebration there in this town, uh, Columbia, Mississippi. But meanwhile, Walters, who was in jail, was doing a lot of talking. He was, he was at the door of his uh, jail cell telling anybody that would listen um, that he was innocent, that the child wasn't Bobby Dunbar. And he was able to get two attorneys to, uh, to represent him and start digging around. And his story that emerged about who the child was began to throw a real wrench in the, in the narrative of Lost Boy Found. He told anybody that would listen that he had come originally from North Carolina uh, traveling by wagon, um, that he was a, a piano tuner, a piano fixer. He fixed people's organs and in churches, um, kind of a wandering handyman with his tools in the back of his wagon. He had in his custody a child named Bruce Anderson. And according to him, Bruce Anderson was the son of Julia Anderson, who was a woman who worked for his parents back in North Carolina. Um, she had first done farming work for his parents and then was a caretaker for them as they grew older. So she was, according to Walters, had been in, in, a, in a kind of a desperate situation and uh, financially and just sort of in her life. Um, she had another child both the other child and this child, Bruce, were, were out of wedlock. Um, there was a, a, a big stigma around that. And she was pregnant with another child still out of wedlock. So she gave a daughter up for adoption to a nearby family. And um, she gave Walter's Bruce, um, the, the boy Bruce, her older, her oldest son, and with the expectation that he would take the child to a relative's house in South Carolina, a kind of like family in the family adoption. And they did go to that family's house, but then they, for reasons unknown, they uh, continued traveling South uh, Walters and, and Bruce making their way through South Carolina down into, um, into Georgia. They were in Florida for a while all across the South before settling sort of in a community called Poplarville in Southern Mississippi. And in, uh, in the Poplarville community, they sort of, they really became fixtures. People saw them at church all the time. Uh, Walters would, he would fix someone's organ and part of his pay was for them to let him sleep on their porch or, or uh, take care of Bruce for a little while. 
all the uh, ladies and all the other kids in, in Poplarville knew Bruce and knew Walters. They loved Bruce. And they, they kind of took the, this, this duo in. They took the, the tinker and the boy in and um, were very well-known kind of members of the community almost for months. I want to ask you about the timeline, which, which is obviously extremely important to this case. How long did Walters claim that he had been on the road with this boy he called Bruce? And how long had Bobby been missing? Right. Great, great, great question. Um, in April 1913, which is when uh, the child was taken from Walters um, and thought to be Bobby Dunbar, Bobby Dunbar had been missing from his family for eight months. Bruce Anderson, the child that Walters insisted was the one in his custody, had been on the road with Walters for over a year. He hadn't seen his mother, Julia Anderson, back in North Carolina for about 15 months. So you have two boys, one who hasn't seen his mother in in 15 months, and um, another who hasn't seen his mother in eight months. Um, Bruce Anderson had the, the added trouble of going from house to house uh, and moving in with families and having mothers in these houses dote on him and give him baths. So there were all these kind of maternal figures in his life in those 15 months that um, really treated him like a very special boy, like, uh, like a son almost. And as those 15 months dragged on and they got further and further away from home geographically, he psychologically was getting further and further away from his mother, Julia, back at home. Um, they kept in touch with letters, periodic letters, and Walters did his best to remind Bruce of, of who his mother was um, along the way. So it wasn't like a... a, a a nefarious kidnapping. So he, you know, Bruce knew who his mother was, but she, she became kind of more and more of an abstraction in his mind. Walters, while he would always insist that he never kidnapped Bruce, um, that he had taken care of, of, of the boy, he, he really hadn't for a lot of the time, right? I mean, when the boy was found, he, he was absolutely filthy, like you said. Yeah. He, he appeared to have been beaten, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't the ideal father. I mean, he, he, um, over time professed a, a love for the boy and, um, a fondness for him. Uh, there was certainly a, um, protective element there in that relationship, but he really wasn't the greatest father in the world. He had a, you know, he has, had his own family that he had kind of abandoned years prior. So he had his own children that he was, um, his own adult children that he was essentially estranged from. He, uh, he was always coming and going. There, there wasn't a lot of stability in his life. And he was, um, he had a volatility too. He was, he, he abused his wife before they, before she divorced him. And there were, you know, very credible accounts of, of him beating this child, Bruce. So he was a, you know, he's a colorful guy. He's a musician. He made, you know, he created this amazing instrument that he called the new age harp of a thousand strings. And he would play on it. He played the violin. He 
He was super handy with organs and uh, really charming. He knew his Bible <laughs> backwards and forwards, but there was a darkness to him also that is undeniable. Yeah, it's another, you know, that's an interesting thing too that Margaret and I went back and forth a lot on his character because she had grown up with the sort of mustache twirling villain, uh, Walters in, in her family legend. And she was scared of him. You know, she, she's, the family had a scrapbook of, um, of newspaper clippings and there's a picture of Walters that would always give her nightmares. And, you know, when I came to the story, I was looking at it in a decidedly different way. I, I felt like Walters was a, a victim of a wrongful, wrongful conviction, wrongful, ac- wrongful accusation, um, that he wasn't a kidnapper. So it took some interesting and fun back and forth, I guess, between us to see the gray and to see, to see the color, but also to f- see that trickier, more violent side of him. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's Julia Anderson's turn. Yeah. She did not have much money. No. So a newspaper volunteered to pay for her transportation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, she was in North Carolina at that time. Still, you know, by the time that that Walters was arrested, she was totally out of money. And the only way that she could go down to Mississippi to make her claim uh, there was no way financially that she could. So authorities found her and then a newspaper, Stringer found her, um, got a newspaper in New, uh, New Orleans to pay for her way to uh, take the train down to Louisiana. Um, the Dunbars by that point had taken this child back to Opelousas where they lived, where Bobby was born. So they were... Uh, in Opelousas, they had a, a huge parade, all kinds of celebrations. The Dunbar family was surrounded by a community that believed that this lost child had been found. It was it was the the happy ending that everybody had wanted for all those months. And then here comes this other mother, Julia Anderson, on the train to complicate the narrative. And and um, between the newspapers and the local sort of town leaders, a really sort of horrific identification process was uh, was sort of planned out. They took Julia to a house in Opelousas um, and kept her in, in one room of the house for a while. She had no sleep from the train ride. She was frazzled. She had been told that her son had been found or that a boy had been found, that it might be her son. She didn't have Walters there to talk to, surrounded by complete strangers that were completely, utterly opposed to her, you know, to any claim that she might make on this child. And so they basically did sort of a lineup. They had uh, several other boys um, from the community that roughly matched the description of Bobby Dunbar and Bruce Anderson, and they would bring these children in to Julia to see if she would uh, she could identify them as her son Bruce and there were a few boys that she uh, first ruled out neither of those children are my are my son and then she was asked to uh, look at Bobby's younger brother Alonzo and uh she looked him over and said that's not my son uh see them eyes them eyes are not mine at that point, 
someone in the hall uh, away from this room clapped and said very loudly, she has failed to recognize the child. And Julia heard that. She heard someone say she has failed to recognize her son, even though she at that moment had not been looking at the child that she thought was her son. So it messed her up. You know, she was, she was really confused. She was like, how could I have not known that that child was not mine? So she was flooded with doubt and uh, they just kept on bringing in other boys um, for her to look at. Um, eventually they brought in the boy in question, Bobby slash Bruce and thought she recognized him at that point. She was like, I think this is my son. Um, he didn't give her the time of day, really, um, was a, was standoffish in the same way that he had been with, with Lessie. And uh, that interaction was declared a, a failure, a failure to conclusively identify the child. And, and uh, even though it had happened in such weird circumstances, and even though there was this, this psychological manipulation that happened, it was pretty much all the town needed to, to declare that Julia Anderson was mistaken. This, you know, this child was not her son, Bruce, and she was, she was wrong. And the, the child was, in fact, Bobby Dunbar. So she had, she also, just like Lessie, had another chance the next day to make an identification, which she did. She was, they, they, they put her in a garage of a neighbor's house and she kind of hid there and watched the children, watched uh, Bobby and his brother Alonzo playing in the backyard with a goat. And, um, at that point, she did identify the boy, Bobby unequivocally as her own, but uh, it was too late. The public opinion had settled. The The child was Bobby Dunbar, and uh, she was kind of whisked off back to North Carolina on the train. And for a while, that was the end of that. Yeah. Th- these women were treated so differently, w- weren't they? Yeah. Uh, Lessie was given every opportunity with the boy. It, it, it seemed as though authorities were doing everything they could to confirm that the boy was Bobby. Yeah, yeah. And it was just the opposite for poor Julia. Yeah, yeah. I think by that point, there were people in Opelousas and there were newspaper reporters. Um, there were also people in Columbia, uh, Mississippi, listening to William Walter's story that began to kind of quietly doubt the Dunbar's version of the story, to, to quietly challenge it to wonder about um, these, these inequities that you, that you were just talking about, to wonder about how all these things unfolded. And so there was this kind of, you know, the, uh, amidst this huge tide of welcoming the lost boy home and, and bringing the kidnapper, the alleged kidnapper to trial, there was this countervailing kind of resistance to that narrative. And uh, it was whispered, but it gained, it gained power um, over time. It's really interesting to see that, you know, at the time there were, there were four New Orleans newspapers. There was a new, there were newspaper wars in New Orleans. The newspapers in New Orleans were, um, had, uh, staked out, uh, opposing stances. Um, the, the New Orleans item was pretty much in the Dunbar camp. And then there was another newspaper, the Daily States that took Walter's side and was more sympathetic to, uh, Julie Anderson that, you know, there are exceptions to that, those, those tendencies here and there, but that's basically kind of how it played out at this 
there was a eventually a, a newspaper war, a circulation war kind of exploded around the time of this case, and the case itself was sort of the front lines of that war. We'll return after these brief messages. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. And we are back. So as this is happening, Lessie and Percy are spending a lot of the time with the boy they believe is their son. Yeah. And they're trying to convince themselves that this is their son. Yeah. So as, as the process of acclimation continues, uh-huh, uh-huh. the boy starts to do things yeah. that are considered major victories, right? By, by Lessie and Percy. Yeah. Like when he finally calls Lessie mama. Right, right, right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. There were there was a several months right after he came home. You know, the the at first he was very standoffish and weirded out by everything. Um, he 
warmed up. And as everyone struggled to uh, get him to remember his former life as Bobby, a big part of that obviously was pressure to confirm to the world at large that he was Bobby. So it wasn't just that they wanted him to remember so he could be happy. They wanted him to remember so they could prove to the world that he was Bobby Dunbar. So they, you know, the, the family made these lists, these giant lists of, of uh, clues, things that he said, things that he did, questions he asked of things that, that proved definitively that this was Bobby. And, uh, they, you know, they compiled them. It was, it was a, you know, it literally was a court document eventually. Uh, you, you talked a, a bit about the foot earlier. Yeah. It, it was one of the ways that they knew they would be able to identify Bobby. How did they rationalize the fact that, that this boy did not have Bobby's very prominent scar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That foot, that foot became kind of this ongoing mystery and source of debate. And, and um, there was never it never fully resolved and there were there were constantly shifting explanations for not just what the foot actually looked like uh but then sort of why it looked different so at the very beginning everybody said the you know the child had been on the on the road with uh with no shoes and his feet were scuffed and you couldn't really see if this, if that same scar was there. Um, once he was kind of cleaned up enough and the scar wasn't there, people reasoned that it had been eight months um, since Bobby Dunbar had gone missing. And in that eight months, that scar maybe had healed. And then the Dunbars began to downplay the toe that had been mentioned so prominently in the reward poster. Uh, Percy Dunbar eventually said on the, on the stand at, at the kidnapping trial that he had put the description in of that toe and that his wife, Lessie, had admonished him and said he was making too much of the toe that, you know, as a father, he didn't know his son's toe as uh, you know the marks and scratches on his son's body as much as the mo- as his mother. Um, so Leslie said the toe had 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 healed some, and it was e- exaggerated in that original reward poster. So there were you know this question of the toe just kept on kept on coming up and kept on coming up, and and um, it uh, it was a real thorn in their in their their narrative. Right. Also, the thing that wouldn't go away, of course, was the fact that there were all of these witnesses who knew the boy as Bruce yeah. and had seen Walters traveling with him months before Bobby had disappeared. Yeah. And on the surface, that seems like pretty solid evidence that the yeah. Dunbars had the wrong boy. Right. How was this explained? Those witnesses in Mississippi that had known Walters to be with a child that they knew to be Bruce were uh, they weren't impeccable but they were they were pretty strong and they they were strong about their dates they were strong about about Walters and 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 uh they were they were you know they they just knew this child this child had been in their homes for months and months and so in reaction to that in the in the face of this these pretty in, incontrovertible witnesses Another theory uh, emerged, and um, that was that Walters had not 
just taken Bobby Dunbar, but he had also taken Bruce Anderson. So Walters had not just one child, but two. He had both Bobby Dunbar and Bruce Anderson at the same time. So in this new two-child theory, all those Mississippi witnesses were confused. The child that they knew as Bruce was, in fact, Bobby. Walters had kind of been switching these children back and forth. So sometimes it was Bruce and sometimes it was Bobby. Um, a very elaborate timeline for this alleged switching was, was uh, concocted. All these kind of sightings of Walters and Bruce you know, for instance, one, one sighting of Walters and Bruce in a diner with another man and his child was kind of spun into a kidnapping gang swapping these two boys. And uh, the difference between the two children uh, in descriptions largely centered around kind of question of, of the boy's fitness. So people who saw Walters and Bruce in the summer of 1912, before Bobby Dunbar had gone missing, saw a very healthy boy. By later that fall and into the winter, um, the child that they saw with Bruce, I mean, with, with, uh, with Walters was kind of sickly and, and ill. And the, the crazy theory was that the real Bruce Anderson in, while in Walters custody had died. And Bobby Dunbar had replaced him. Walters had used Bobby Dunbar to replace him. So, you know, it's really <laughs> out there. Um, and it, and um, it, that theory kind of emerged in fits and starts over two full years of manipulation of witness testimony, of wild newspaper conjecture and speculation. And also that theory found hold in the child's own memory. So eventually the child who was by now assumed to be Bobby Dunbar was remembering the other boy with him and Walters in the wagon on the road. Um, the other boy who he played with, the other boy who got sick um, and had to walk on crutches. And eventually Bobby Dunbar was remembering the other boy who had died. So um, that that uh, crazy theory became part of Bobby Dunbar's memory. And this boy would actually testify on the stand that he had a memory of being there with Bruce, yeah. watching Bruce fall off a wagon. And was it uh, hurt himself or tie? He eventually died. It wasn't clear. It wasn't clear in the in the um, the child's recounting how long that process worked. But it, in sort of uh, popular opinion, it it served to fit with this idea of an injury and then weakening and then death. So yeah, the boy did say that, and and um, that memory became very real to him. He lived out his life and and had that memory pretty much until he died. So what about the photographs? There, there were photographs of little Bobby. You've got them in your book. Yeah. Uh, were they published in papers? Were they readily available to the public? 
Were, were people able to compare the photos for themselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People did that a lot. I mean, people were constantly taking the baby picture of Bobby Dunbar and, and holding up alongside the four or five-year-old picture of the child whose identity was in question. And, you know, when they did that, one of the first things they saw was that the baby Bobby Dunbar had very round eyes and the child in question did not have round eyes. His eyes were, were kind of more squinty and the, you know, that was, that was the big thing. That was a big, the, the big difference that everybody noticed. And that became, uh, you know, another one of those thorns, like the, like the toe, there were all kinds of answers for that, that emerged that, that the Dunbars kind of grabbed onto. One was that potentially Walters had used some sort of like medication on the child's eyes to change the shape of his eyes. Another was that, that, that the child had been, you know, out in the elements and the squinting so much in the sun that he just sort of developed a squint, a lot of stuff like that. So, uh, you know, if you, if you compare the child that grew up as Bobby Dunbar with his brother Alonzo, you can still see that difference in the eyes. So what happened to Walters? Can you talk about him yeah. and his tumultuous journey through the criminal legal system. Yeah, yeah. His his journey was really convoluted. I mean, basically he was in Mississippi being charged with kidnapping in Louisiana and so all of this political stuff started coming into play. Um the governor of Mississippi refused to extradite him because he believed uh that he was innocent. There was this kind of interstate warfare between Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, Mississippi saying that Louisianans couldn't be trusted with a kidnapper. They would kill him. They would lynch him. Uh, Louisianans insisting that Mississippi was, was not obeying the laws of extradition, um, back and forth. And finally, he, um, you know, after a lot of legal maneuvering, years of legal maneuvering, he was, he was extradited and brought to Opelousas for trial. And uh, the sheriff in Opelousas actually kind of liked Walters. They were they were friendly with each other, and he gave Walters a, a really big jail cell that had a window overlooking the the town courtyard. And Walters brought an instrument that he had made while he was on the road. This harp, this huge harp that I had talked about, and he would sit at the window of the jail cell and play the harp and try to muster a crowd of, of uh, gawkers from Opelousas and basically like give his case, you know, try to plead his case with the public and win over, you know, public sentiment towards him. And uh, he really worked at this like it was a job, you know, I mean, it really was a job. He was, he, as he saw it, he was uh, trying to win people over, you know, to save his life. At that time, kidnapping was a, was punishable by death. So, he charmed people. He, he charmed the town. A lot of the people in the town, they, you know, mothers would take him up to the, take their children up to the jail cell to kind of make some sort of lesson about, you know, this is what happens if you do bad things. And Walters would end up charming, you know, the children and the mothers. So he really became this kind of town character. And, and, um, that kind of like sense of sort of show and performance bled over into the whole trial itself. So after a long time in jail, they finally 
brought him to trial for kidnapping in Opelousas. And it was like a huge kind of statewide event. The all kinds of like weird, like circus acts and ad hoc little businesses cropped up like postcard writing booths. People flooded in for this trial. Like it was like a, you know, a sports event. And Walters was totally, totally part of that. So it, yeah, the, there was a, a, a really long trial in Opelousas that Walt, not just Walters testifying on his own behalf, but um, they brought Julia Anderson um, back from North Carolina to testify again. So the trial was kind of the climax of this war between um, these two New Orleans newspapers. So in addition to making sense of the trial itself, there was a, just a lot of yellow journalism happening, a lot of fabrication, a lot of exaggeration, a lot of like witness manipulation. The reporters badgered Julia and they sort of made up things about what she had said and made up her own memories of the child. So there's this kind of like news effort to discredit her. And meanwhile, the Walters's uh, defense attorneys were working with a local attorney in Opelousas who knew kind of the local climate. And he was able to get witnesses that doubted the Dunbar's story, a few witnesses here and there to come forward to kind of poke holes in uh, the narrative that this child was Bobby Dunbar and to poke holes in the narrative that everyone in town recognized that he was Bobby Dunbar. So there were people who would come forward and say, my daughter never recognized that boy as Bobby Dunbar. And he, and I saw him not recognize Lessie as, as his mother. One of the most wrenching moments of that trial was when Julia was testifying, she was brought face to face with the child herself. And at that point, she was deathly ill. She had just fallen terribly ill, fevered. Her testimony had been moved a little bit, and uh, she was still bedridden and uh, staying in a hotel. So they brought her bed with her in it down from her upstairs room down to the lobby of the hotel and brought the jury into the lobby and then brought the child into the lobby for her to identify. And there are just these wrenching moments where um, the jury would ask to see Julia and the child side by side and they would stand together with their faces together frozen so the jury could compare their features. And the child was obviously totally freaked out by then completely convinced that he was Bobby Dunbar. And she, she, after this event was over, imagined or hoped that there had been some recognition and some moment of small affection between them during that experience. But he ran off and that is the, that's the last time that she ever saw him. Wow. Um, the jury reached the verdict that Walters was guilty of kidnapping, um, but they did not agree to give him uh, the death penalty. So, yeah, Walters was found guilty and um, protesting his his innocence the whole time. He went um, he went to jail in New Orleans uh, for a time, and his attorneys actually eventually did mount a successful campaign to get a retrial. And that was eventually possibly going to happen. But instead, I guess the, the attorney, the, the district attorney in, 
in Opelousas decided it was, or said that it was too expensive, that a retrial would be too expensive. It had already been like a crazy circus that broke the town. So they dropped the charges. Um, so Walters was in jail for, I think, a year and a half and um, quickly summarily released. Um, and uh, as soon as he got out of jail, he recorded a newsreel that doesn't exist to this day, which is really sad to me. But um, he uh, then he went on he went on tour. He he took his tail on the road, so he uh, was sort of like a little bit of like a vaudeville performer. Um, he took his his uh, his harp and would perform for audiences and theaters and you know along coastal Mississippi primarily, telling his tale of his of uh, of his innocence. And um, from there gotten some more trouble with the law in um in New Orleans and and eventually left Louisiana and Mississippi for good and uh reconnected with some family back in New or- in North Carolina for a little while always insisting on his innocence and sort of just kind of faded out when you know ca- sort of returned to that life that he had before that was uh on the road with his wagon and his tools and like, going from town to town so you mentioned early on that, that some have accused Walters of being a pedophile. Yeah. It, it, is it just because of the optics, the fact that a grown man had, had taken a child from his mother and, and chose to travel alone with him? Is, is that why those allegations are out there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is his his great nieces told the best story ab- about their father asking Walters that question directly during one of his visits after the whole kidnapping trial had happened after he was released from jail. What did you want with that boy? And he got incensed at the the implication that of pedophilia or or some kind of abuse and stalked out of the room and never saw the never saw that part of the family again, um, stalked out of the house. So what eventually kind of people settled on, and I think I think Walters admitted this to a degree, was that the child was, you know, Walters on his own as a guy in a wagon that looks a little scary. <laughs> and um, so, you know, a, a stranger in town is not necessarily somebody you want to welcome into your your house to fix your piano or whatever. But a, a guy on a wagon with a little boy is is more attractive and um, the child could kind of help Walters gain sympathy in communities. Um, if he had, you know, he had this little boy that the mothers love to dote over and take care of and, and bathe. And he was a, a little bit of a feature, <laughs> a little bit of a, a business feature, I guess. And, and I think, I think Walters admitted as much. Um, I, you know, the, the pedophilia thing is not something that, Obviously, there was any explicit mention of at the time. They, you know, people didn't say things like that in the in newspapers or even in really in court so much. So it's unclear how much that was a part of the accusation. It might be something that kind of crept in 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 a more modern time. I'm not entirely sure kind of when that became part of the part of the suspicion. Yeah. So we've covered a lot so far, a lot of information, not in the original 2008 This American Life broadcast. And again, there will be a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. But from this point on, I 
do want to ask you about some of the things explored so masterfully in, in that in that show. Thank you. So if listeners want at this point to stop here and listen to that, I would totally encourage it. Right. If you don't, or if you're listening to this interview 10 years down the road and yeah. This American Life has pulled that episode off of its website, just stay where you are and we'll continue with the story. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. So, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, your co-author, started doing this family research, right? Believing that the boy was Bobby Dunbar yeah. for very understandable reasons. Yeah, well, she had, you know, she, Margaret had grown up with the story um, of her grandfather as a little boy kidnapped. This other woman contested the identity of, of her grandfather and insisted that, that the child was hers. Um, but she was proven wrong. She was proven wrong in court. The kidnapper was um, established to be uh, guilty. And she grew up with the story in her family that it was sort of like a little blip. You know, the Bobby Dunbar, the colorful kidnapping in his past, but luckily he was returned home. So really that doubt, that question of doubt as to his identity wasn't so much on her radar when she dug into this project. You know, her father handed her a scrapbook that, that had been passed down in the family for generations of all these newspaper clippings and photographs uh, that detailed the case. And he basically said, here's this project for you. You know, maybe you can make some sense of it or, or do something with it. I don't think it was really in her father's mind to challenge the story so much or, or to um, develop a, you know, a, a contrary theory. It was kind of a mystery that nobody really felt needed solving by that point. So that's what she sort of went into it with. And it didn't take long for her to come up against challenges to that that family legend. One of the very first things she did was look on a genealogy website and she found descendants of Julia Anderson that had uh, posted that they were looking for information about their ancestor, Bruce Anderson, who was kidnapped by the Dunbars in Louisiana. So they had their own kidnapping narrative that was totally the opposite. So those challenges were there and she tried to keep an open mind. Everybody in the Anderson family welcomed her um, with open arms and she shared research with them. There was part of her that did want to prove that um, the child was, was Bobby Dunbar, that the legend that she had grown up with was the truth. And that just became harder and harder for her to do. The more, the more people she met, the more evidence she gathered. So, yeah, there was. It, it began to to kind of cause tension within her, um, and then sometimes between her and members of the um, of the Anderson family. Um, a person who is both of both Margaret and my's dear friend, Linda Tarver, who um, is Julia Anderson's granddaughter took an interest in the case too. And she and Margaret kind of used to go back and forth, arguing over the specifics of the case, talking it through each of them with a different outcome that they wanted to see from the research. They wanted proof. Linda wanted proof for that it was that it was Bruce. 
Margaret kind of wanted proof that it was that it was Bobby. And then Margaret's research started stirring up trouble in her own family. People felt like she was ruffling feathers and and digging where she shouldn't dig and and drawing too much attention to them and bringing up kind of old pain. Uh, her father, Margaret's father, who's Bobby Dunbar Jr., Bobby Dunbar's son, he encouraged her the whole way. He was excited to see his daughter digging into this family story. And he had his own feelings of doubt who his father was that he had not necessarily been able to voice. And now here his daughter was uncovering this stuff. And and I think part of that made him proud as much as it put him at odds sometimes with the rest of his, his own family. One final break. We will be back in a moment. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. And, and the boy, Bobby Dunbar, growing up, he, he was on his own personal journey. Right. He was questioning his own identity Yeah, uh, for, for his entire life. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. You would hope that a child that had been through all of that uh, would come back to his family and, and lead this kind of like happy life. But within years of his life as Bobby Dunbar post-kidnapping, his family fell apart. His, his, uh, his mother left the family, the father cheating on the mother. So um, uh, as the marriage dissolved, both of the parents kind of individually dissolved too. And, and Percy uh, drank a lot. Um, he, he died too early. Um, Lessie entered into one kind of ill-fated marriage and then another, uh, she moved to Virginia, where she lived alone for many, many years. And as Bobby Dunbar grew up in Opelousas, he was estranged from, from both of his parents, and both he and his brother Alonzo went to military academies, to a private school in New Orleans. He didn't go to college. He didn't finish high school. He stayed in Opelousas, which is the town that he knew. And, and um, as a young man, Bobby Dunbar was lost. And there are people that Margaret talked to, or one person in particular that Margaret talked to, that remembered Bobby Dunbar saying to her after a party, when he was talking about the whole kidnapping thing, saying to her that he didn't really know who he was. So he's a young man growing up, and he has all these uh, kind of doubts about his identity that he can't really share with anybody kind of lost. And um, 
I think the thing that really saved him was was meeting um, his future wife Marjorie, and she had lost a parent her own on her own, and was was a real kind of strong stabilizing force for him, and uh, they fell in love, you know, and they got married and started a family, and that family was something that he protected and and held on to with everything that he had it was it was sort of like his way of having the family that he never had himself growing up his way of giving his children the childhood that he had never grown up uh, that he hadn't had uh, growing up so he really he gave fatherhood his all and one of the true joys of this book was uh, the process of writing this book was interviewing his children about their memories of their father and um the things that he did to make them feel safe, to to give them these full childhoods. You know, he he. One of the things that that I remember is his his daughter remembered that he would her feet would be cold uh, when she was sleeping in in bed at night, and he would take a jar, a glass jar of warm water, and put it down at her feet somehow, so to to keep her feet warm. He also led a club of airplane, like a model airplane club that uh, his sons were active and in, actively involved in, um, kind of a leader in the community in the Catholic church. And, uh, you know, first he started a, a, one of his first jobs was running a service station, which he called the Bobby Dun- you know, Bobby Dunbar service station. Um, from there, he uh, started working, doing a lot of work as, as a salesman for various various companies, one of which the longest lasting one was an electrical supply company, which which allowed him to, to travel a lot. So he his route often took him across Louisiana and often over into Mississippi. And during some of those trips, the questions of who he was seemed to have uh, emerged in ways in his mind. And some people on the Anderson side of things, of the family um, in Mississippi, remember a strange man coming to visit them, not really lingering for long, um, and asking a few questions here and there. And in one case, even identifying himself as Bobby Dunbar from Opelousas. So there's evidence that he was searching for answers for himself in, in throughout his life, um, and that he never he never really got the the full picture. He never really settled on it. Uh, his son Bobby Dunbar Jr. sat in on an interview that his father was giving in the fifties. There, another child had been kidnapped, and the newspapers were asking Bobby Dunbar, the famous kidnapping victim of of yesteryear, what it was like, and the interview is really interesting. And, you know, he, he remembers Walters. He remembers being on the road. He remembers this other boy. One of the things that really comes clear in that interview is a, a sense of fondness for Walters that he liked, you know, as, as horrible as the idea of being kidnapped was a big part of his memory that was coming through at that point as an adult was that, it was fun that this tra- this time on the road was was fun that 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 it was an adventure, and that Walters wasn't somebody that he had been he was scared of. So all these kind of very mixed emotions that you might not have if you were really a child that had been kidnapped and abused 
repeatedly by this person, by a, you know, a guy who, who was an, an actual kidnapper. And hearing his father tell those stories that way was part of what Bobby Jr., part of what made him begin to really ask his father some questions. How do you know who you are? You know, like those are a lot of weird things that you're telling in this interview and, and, um, they don't really make sense. And then he, Bobby Jr. started having, you know, doubts himself. And I think those doubts, uh, festered when he finally was able to ask his father, how do you know who you are or who are you? Um, his father said, Bobby Dunbar said, I know who I am and I know who you are and nothing else makes a difference. So in, in Bobby's mind, he had, he had created his own world, his own true and undeniable sense of kinship and bonding bond, family bond with his son, with the, with the family that he had made. And that's all that mattered. The questions about his family before about his, his identity in some broader way, those things, those things didn't matter. Or at least that's what he told his son. Yeah, that, that's really powerful. So I'm sure for those who aren't familiar with this case, they're wondering about DNA. Yeah. That seems to be one of the ways to solve this, and DNA would eventually be tested. Can you talk about how, how that all happened and what the results of the test were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I have to start by saying <laughs> I'm not a DNA expert. Um, and my goal in writing this book the way that I did was to try to prove, to offer definitive proof of the identity of this person through the historical record, um, through the available historical record without the need for a DNA test or, or any kind of other sort of intervention like that. Um, but that said, before this book, back in, in the early 2000s, Margaret had unearthed so much doubt about her family's story that they, she and her father decided to do a DNA test to try to figure out who Bobby Dunbar really was, who the person they knew as Bobby Dunbar really was. And they did a, they did a DNA test with with um, Bobby Dunbar Jr., Margaret's father. By that point, Bobby Dunbar had died. I should say that. Um, the, the DNA test with Bobby Dunbar Jr. and with a child of Alonzo Dunbar, who was Bobby Dunbar's younger brother. So Alonzo's son and Bobby Dunbar did the, did the DNA test and much to Margaret's surprise, the, the DNA was not a match. So they were not from the same family. And that threw everybody in the family for a, for a real loop. So what were the reactions by family members of Bobby and Bruce to this news? The first person to hear it was uh, Margaret's father, who was just as taken aback as Margaret was, um, just as shocked and surprised. I think both of them had sort of expected 
the DNA to potentially, you know, to prove that the, the boy was, was really Bobby Dunbar. And as they began to tell their family, the folks in the Dunbar family, there was some real blowback from within the family. Um, people were upset that they had taken the, the DNA test without asking that, you know, without, without the, the whole family's kind of buy-in. And some people felt like it was, it was disrupting this proud kind of heritage that they had, they had inherited in, you know, in this uh, long Dunbar family line. Um, there's this just amazing Dunbar family tree that has, you know, two of the final leaves on it are Percy and then Bobby and Alonzo. And Gerald, who is Margaret's uncle, youngest uncle, Bobby Dunbar's youngest child, the what he said to me was that it it called a lot of things into question, or it seemed to call a lot of things into question for a while. But his feeling about that family tree and his connected connectedness to that family tree, in the end, still still felt real, still felt very real. So it was it was less of a less of a disruption, I think, than he than he thought in the end. You know, that wasn't the reaction of a lot of the other people um, in the family. And luckily they've, you know, they have, they have come around though. Um, over time, reading the book, talking to Margaret, kind of absorbing the full weight of the historical record. And for, you know, some members of the Dunbar family actually were able to meet and the, the Andersons from Mississippi, the, or, you know, the descendants of Julia Anderson. And I think that really went a long way towards having a more peaceful end up to the the story for for people for Bobby Jr Margaret's father there's a real sense of kinship with Julia Anderson's children Hollis Rawls and Jewel Tarver um they're also in the radio show um when they found out about the DNA test they were pretty overjoyed it meant that that their version of history um that they had grown up with was right that Bruce had lived, you know, their, their relative Bruce had, had lived a, a full life and wasn't, you know, out there missing somewhere in the wilderness or, or buried in a hole as kind of the, the, the mythology of the story had, had led them to believe. So yeah, they were, they were really overjoyed. And Bobby Jr. went and delivered the news in person to them. Um, to Hollis and Jewel, and they were just thrilled. They they hugged. They they were just ecstatic, and that sort of forged. That was the beginning of a really interesting kind of like just a, almost like a cousin or a brother sort of relationship between Bobby Jr. and 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 Hollis and Jewel um, that lasted until pretty much until they they all passed away. So the DNA's results in that situation had a really great great result. So they the um for the Walters family they had grown up with a a kind of a stigma around their ancestor William Walters that he was a you know a child snatcher um, a no good guy and and um, this the 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 DNA test exonerated him it it, it showed that, that the story that he had been telling on the stand and for so many years that this child was Bruce Anderson was actually true. So there was a sense of vindication, um, exoneration, and relief. Margaret delivered the news about the DNA test 
at a Walters family reunion. And there was just, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a real moment of rejoice there. So, you know, there was, I'd, I'd say on the overall level, there, there was a momentary sort of disruption and sense of dislocation, but people have, have really come to peace and really come together over the news. It feels like a, you know, it feels like history, like just a, a, a nagging question of history has been, of family history has been resolved. Yeah. So this next question is one that you also ask at the end of the This American Life episode. Uh, if this boy was, in fact, Bruce Anderson, which it sure seems that it, that it was, mm-hmm. what really happened to Bobby Dunbar? Right. Uh, and it, it's mentioned that Margaret believes that he might have fallen into the lake and might have been eaten by an alligator. Yeah. But, but there were no torn clothes, no bloody clothes found. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when I was reading it, I, I thought, gosh, his footprints, you know, mm-hmm. just stopping abruptly at the railroad tracks. He, he had to have been picked up by someone. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe stashed into a train car and whisked away to some other part of the country. But what do you think? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. They scoured the lake for, you know, they dove into the lake looking for, um, looking for a body. Uh, they dynamited the lake. They cut open alligators to see if the, an alligator had, you know, eaten this child. Um, they didn't find anything. When they saw those footprints, followed them up to the railroad track, that was their first question was, you know, somebody, somebody must have come and taken him. And there were sightings of itinerant men along those railroad tracks at that time. They weren't the most reliable sightings and they colored and they kind of changed over time. You know, both Margaret and I have been out there to Swayze Lake of many times. And, and, um, even now in its kind of more modern civilized state, it's still a, a giant body of water with a lot of weird places in it, like a lot of places where roots, under roots everywhere, you know, it's very, very easy for me to believe that a child fell in there and drowned and maybe wasn't eaten by an alligator, but just fell and sunk into some place that they were not able to reach during that search. I think that's the most uh, likely of, of possibilities. Uh, another part, another um, element there is that the lake had been recently really, really high. There had been flooding. So the shore of the lake was really muddy. The level of the lake was higher than, than normal. So I think that makes that kind of scenario more likely. And the way that searchers and these detectives and police scoured this, this world of itinerant men of hobos. And they basically over the, you know, over many months turned up so many other possible children that weren't Bobby Dunbar, that that search feels exhaustive to me. Whereas the, the, that original search in the lake doesn't seems like it. It uh, that's that's a that's a more plausible spot. Yeah. Uh, in one instance, uh, one of the men searching for Bobby took a straw hat uh, similar to the one Bobby had been wearing when yeah. he disappeared. And threw it into the lake to, yeah. to see if it would sink, and it yeah. didn't. 
And that's kind of interesting because none of his clothing, including his hat, were ever recovered. Right, right, right. So he, yeah, he threw the, he threw the hat into the lake with the, you know, the hypothesis was that if the child had fallen in the lake, the hat that he was wearing would have come off as he sunk because it was known that Bobby Dun- the strap on Bobby Dunbar's hat had, had broken that day. So that hat would have come right off and floated for some time in the lake. So searchers would have seen the hat and known that that was a, a place to look, um, but they never found a hat. So that is a, certainly a, a possibility. And that is the, you know, that's the, uh, on the other hand, maybe the hat didn't fall off and it sunk with him, or maybe they didn't find the hat. You know, I don't know. <laughs> there are a lot of, there, that is one of those things that, that doesn't really have an easy answer. Or, you know, 100 years later, uh, a, a little thing that, that still you, you can't get to the bottom of. Right. This is just a, a, an endlessly fascinating case. So you've got a website where people can learn about you and the work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. TalMcDenia.com. Yeah. And you wrote an article recently, right, for Audubon Magazine. Yeah. The obsession with missing people and contested identity for some reason has has wormed its way into my soul and uh last year i wrote an article for uh, audubon magazine which uh, my partner <laughs> says is 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 like bobby dunbar with but with birds and it's um it's about a missing ornithologist that uh kind of assumes a new identity in a whole different place and and um, a lot of the mystery of his identity is surrounded is is centered on his um his particular obsessions with various birds. So <laughs> that was another really fun mystery identity mystery to untangle. And it's roughly the same period of roughly the same uh, time period. Oh, that that's really cool. Yeah. Well, thank you again for going into such great detail with us about this very compelling case. Thank you so much. It's been really great to, uh, to think back on it and talk about it again. I really appreciate it. Again, I have been talking to Tal McThenia. He is a co-author, along with Margaret Dunbar Cutright, of the book A Case for Solomon, Bobby Dunbar and the Kidnapping that Haunted a Nation. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Ribbonis, and have a safe tomorrow.